0: Welcome to another episode of the Clip City Podcast. I'm your host, Yovan Buha, Clippers beat writer for The Athletic. And today I am joined by mode Dekeel. I, I, I'm, I'm getting it really good you now. Got, you got it. You nailed it. It wasn't even a hesitation. Nailed it. it basically, my, my co-host at this point seems like <laughs> you're on every other week. Um, and... I kind of don't want to say what we're about to talk about because I think there's going to be some people who just shut this podcast off immediately. But this week at the Athletic, we are doing a do-over blitz, uh, which our blitzes are—I've talked about this before—but it's basically a site-wide kind of you know story, topic, theme that you know we all or you know a lot of people will write about. So for this week, it's do-overs. You know, is there a moment? A game, a signing, a trade uh, of some sort that your franchise that you cover, uh, you know, would love to have a do-over with. And for the Clippers, you know, I, I've been into deep into the the weeds of Clippers history over the past couple of weeks, doing my uniform story and um, some of you know the, the Clippers quiz and, and and the survey and like just different stuff where I've really been digging into. The Clippers passed and I already knew a lot of it, but, uh, you know, there's been so many things that I'd either forgotten or or never knew. Um, So the Clippers really might have the most potential do-overs in NBA history uh, of any franchise. Like if you really look at it, um, you know, you have giving up on Moses Malone and Adrian Dantley really early into their careers. And there was other names Um, getting guys like, you know, uh, Bill Walton at at the wrong stage of his career. (laughs) Um, You know, injuries to young players and Blake Griffin, Sean Livingston, Danny Manning, you know, potentially altering those players' careers. Um, The Michael O'Candy draft pick, you know, drafting him ahead of Dirk, Paul Pierce, Vince Carter, Mike. like all these guys who are all-stars, all-NBA guys, future Hall of Famers that Michael O'Candy ended up getting drafted (laughs) ahead of. Um, And and again, these are like a few. Like you you can really go – can, I hit, you with, list can and- I hit
1: you with one more draft yeah. do-over? Drafting Yaroslav Korolev yeah. <laughs> over Danny Granger might I be mean, the single. Might even be worse than Olua Candy.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's it's like everyone has their favorite, and and you know you can look at um, you know some of the like you forget how there's so many young guys that the Clippers gave up on. (laughs) And at first there was part of me that's like, well, I I know Sterling had this reputation as obviously being cheap. And, you know, aside from all the bad stuff uh, about him individually as like a person, just as like in, in terms of being an owner, he was a notoriously cheap owner who, when it came to paying guys, when it came to making those difficult financial decisions, he always favored the bottom line and whatever was going to be the cheapest, you know, best for his pocketbook. And a lot of times that was not re-signing young talent that they had. But when you actually go back and read some of the stuff, it's crazy how many guys basically forced them, you know, forced their way out of LA where you read the newspaper clipping and it's like, you know, such and such did not want to play for the Clippers anymore. Such and such you know, refused to resign and therefore was signed and traded or something like that. And that's going back to like the 80s and the 90s, not even more recently in the player empowerment era. So, I, I, I mean, I think this franchise more so than than any other franchise really has all these hypothetical do-overs. But for my money, the number one do-over in Clippers history would be game six, uh, the, the game six loss to the Houston Rockets in the 2015 Western Conference semifinals which they blew a 19-point lead twice. Yeah, they led by 19 <laughs> points twice in the final minutes of the third quarter, at which point multiple statistical models gave them over a 95% chance, um, as high as a 97.7% chance of winning the game. And they're just the third team in NBA history to lose a game, at ho- a series-clinching game at home, while leading by double digits heading into the fourth quarter, so you know they they won games three and four this series at home by combined fifty eight points. So you know we we know during the Lob City era the Clippers were a very good home team. Um, they they actually had some impressive wins on the road as well in the playoffs, but at home they're particularly dominant. So for them to have a nineteen point lead twice deep in the third quarter, really be rolling on all cylinders. Houston was dejected uh, that third quarter. Uh, you know, Dwight had picked up a flagrant for for shoving, or not not shoving, but but kind of you know really hammering Blake on a drive. You had James Harden who shoved Blake also in that quarter to pick up a technical. And Houston was just losing its composure. Uh, you know, Staples was as loud as it's pretty much ever been with, with them on the brink of making the Western Conference Finals, and you just have this ultimate collapse that was really. Um, you know what? What kind of sparked this thought for me was recently on the part in my take podcast, JJ Redick said, for you know, in his opinion, that collapse was the end of Lob City. Like, you know, yes, they had two more years after that together, but ever since then, the, you know, they they lost their mental strength. Um, they were never the same team. They never got out of the first round again, and you know, the Clippers haven't been out of the first round since. And, and I think that really was a defining moment for that era of the franchise of, you know, you, you really saw the best and the worst of Lob City uh, in that game. I, I just wrote about it, and by the time this podcast is out, you'll have a chance to read w- what I wrote. I mean, I basically said, like, if, if, you know, 20 years from now, if we're trying to describe to someone what Lob City was and, and, you know, this is the best team to never make a conference finals, like, you know, statistically, it was the best five-year run to not make a conference finals. um, If I was trying to explain to someone, you know, what Lob City was, I'd show them this game because for three quarters, you saw the best of Lob City. You saw Blake, you saw Chris, you know, JJ, everyone firing on all cylinders. And then you also saw the worst of Lob City, which was that final 14 minutes of that game where they're outscored 49 to 18. So um, I know you have a special story that you want to share. Which we'll get into now, but I, I just thought overall this was like the perfect encapsulation of the Lob City era—the potential, the disappointment, the shortcomings. It was all like a, a jumbo of the good, the bad, and the ugly.
1: Yeah, and before I go into my little story here, the point here, guys, is let's 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 get rid of the demons. Let's get closure. We got to talk this out. Don't don't turn it off and be like, oh, I don't want to listen to this. We got to talk this out. This way we can start to build and get. Into a better future, which we're hoping is going to shape up for the Clippers. But for me, this is a really interesting sc- scenario because this is the first year I'm no longer in the NBA. I've been working in basketball since I was 19. I was completely out. I wasn't even starting to do media stuff. You know, I was literally just working a regular nine to five, which I hated, and doing all that stuff. So, I tended to ignore this game just cause I was kind of pissed off and, and, and more sour grapes of like the year after I'm gone, this team's going to go to the conference finals and potentially the finals. Like I was a bit pissed. So I'm playing in an, a, a, a basketball rec league that evening. And you know, like I'm getting score updates and we're, and I'm hearing it's a blowout or whatever. And I'm like, wow, this thing's over. And on my drive back and I'm pulling into my apartments, little parking structure And I get a text message from a buddy of mine, you know, going like, can you believe this? Can you believe what's happening? I go like, yeah, I can't believe they're going to the conference finals. He's like, are you watching the game? I was like, (laughs) no, I've, I've just kind of, I heard the score They're They're up by 19. Like they're winning. Right. And he's like, you need to get to a TV like right now. So, you know, obviously I park, I sprint to my apartment and I turn it on and I'm catching like the last four minutes live and my jaw is dropped. And I'm just like, I cannot believe they're about to lose. Now, of course, after this game, I'm just immediately like this thing is over. Like, I know this team, like it's done. Like they're not winning game seven. Like to me, I, that was hands down a pack thing. But like part of me was sad for the guys. Cause you know, I love CP, JJ, Blake, all those guys I've had relationships with and, 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 you know, I haven't worked with them for so long. I, I I felt bad from that part of me was kind of like, yeah, but at least they're not going to go to the conference finals without me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the pettiness.
1: Oh, lots of pettiness. There's still Just, some, but there's justifi- this, justifiable. There's some sour grapes at that point. You know, I'm over it now. But at that time, it was still fresh. It was still still rough. And, and you know, you don't you don't want the team to win the championship the year you're gone like they could have won it the next year. I'd have been fine. But that first year I needed them to not be uh champion so i apologize clip city folks but i wasn't like too heartbroken but i was stunned at the pure fact when i got the text message i was like whoa
0: we're doing ourselves no favors at the top of this podcast um
1: (laughs) it's okay guys you got it listen we gotta let it out guys this is gonna be a tough one but let it out you're gonna feel better afterwards trust me
0: so to to provide some context of the the first I guess we can call it the first three quarters or the first uh you know thirty-four minutes of this game. Um the, the Clippers it, it's the Clippers are leading three two in the series. They got up to a three-one a lead. So they win game one without Chris Paul, who who, if you remember, got injured in game seven of the Spurs series, injured his hamstring. Um so they win game one. Blake is playing Maybe the best basketball he's ever played, uh, and you know, I guess that you know last year in Detroit it was probably his best season ever. But this was at the time, and you know definitely probably as a Clipper, the best he had played um, heading into Game Six. He was averaging over twenty-six points, thirteen rebounds, and six assists—numbers that only Oscar Robertson had put up in in the postseason. So Blake is playing out of his mind right now. Um, you know has has a monster game in Game One. Clippers win game one, they lose game two by six points. It's a pretty close game, comes down to the wire. Come back to LA, smack the Rockets in both games in LA by over 25 points in, in both games for a total of 58 points and go to to game, go to, back to Houston game five. Don't really take things that seriously and you could just see like a visibly lackadaisical effort from them and, and almost that kind of comfort of like, we're going to go back, you know, we either win this game or we're going back to L.A. and we're going to win it there like the series is over. Uh, that ended up costing them because they, they got smacked in game five by 21 points. Go back to L.A. setting up this dramatic game six that, again, up to this point, the, the Clippers had clearly been the better team in the series and, and you know, did have the 3-2 series lead, but it was putting a lot in this game. So first three quarters, you are know, going the Clippers' way. Clippers are leading 92-79. Through uh, through three, they had a 19 point lead twice. uh, You know, in the final few minutes of the third, at this point, Blake Griffin has a game high 28 points. He's rolling. He's been the best player through the first three quarters. James Harden is struggling. Um, You know, he he does have uh, 23 points, but he's not been able. You know, he's five of 20 from the field. Has only been scoring at the free throw line, and you know, is a minus 20. Uh, in plus minus, and really, the Rockets don't have anyone else stepping up. You know, Corey Brewer um, hadn't gone off yet, Josh Smith hadn't gone off yet. Like it had been a little bit of Terrence Jones and Trevor Ariza, but uh, and, and Dwight Howard had, had been playing well. Um, but you know, Houston was kind of struggling, and you could just see the body language of the bench. They were ready to give up. They were ready to go home. And again, in that third quarter, they were starting to lose their composure, and all of a sudden. You know, to to end the third, they go on this little nine zero run to to get it to thirteen, to you know, uh, uh, you know, to go into the fourth. Before before, the f-
1: before before we go, go into
0: that, like we got it. Like
1: the clips were dominating that third quarter. Yeah, like you know, like to to really kind of get an understanding of it. Like it was back and forth a little bit. Like they built a big lead in the first quarter. Rockets made a run in the second quarter, and then it kind of halftime went into being close. But they were. Dominant in that third quarter, you know, like CP's coming in with twelve points to to lead the team, and and all scores, and and you know four assists. You know Blake's rolling three of three from the field, six points. Like these guys are just there. There was a a level of like you know when I rewatched it, you can feel it. Like this is this is they're they're gonna break through. Like this is the moment, and the way they took control in that first what, nine minutes of that third quarter, you really felt confident that, like, this is it. This is the moment.
0: And and I thought a play that encapsulated that was – it's actually the opening scene of my story, is that, you know, Blake, Blake grabs a rebound. I think they throw a lob to Dwight. He He fumbles it. Blake grabs the rebound, outlets it to Chris – who takes one dribble and immediately Pablo Prigioni's there trying to swipe the ball away. He feeds it back to Blake, who's now running almost at half court now, which is, you know, you forget how athletic Blake was in his prime. Um, so he's, and this was already kind of like past his physical prime a little bit. Um, he's, you know, at half court, you know, takes a few dribbles and kind of head fakes a little bit. Uh, for deandre so you, you, he has jj and matt barnes flanking him they're going to the corners you have dj rim running and blake kind of gives him a head fake as if he's going to throw a lob and that's just enough of like a distraction to the defense for blake to take it at terrence jones who's retreating but as blake's going up he kind of loses his balance and spins in the air and just kind of (laughs) pirouettes and throws up this just like wild you know just flings in the shot that banks in and that was to get him to 28 points and it just kind of to me summed up the night to that point of like this is the clippers night blake's rolling you know he's kind of become the go-to guy on this team the rockets had no answer for blake griffin and when we get into the do-over aspect of this in, in a second that to me was like one of the the most jarring things of seeing the looks Blake got through the first three quarters versus the fourth quarter uh i, I just thought it it was night and day but that to me was just like everything is going right for the clippers you know blake's flinging in 360 layups that he didn't even mean to attempt and the clippers are rolling i mean and- we've all
1: we've all watched games where like we've had a moment where we're like, well, if that crap's going to go in. Exactly. You know, it's it not was, our it that and, exact moment. And, and, and it's that. It's, that's the type of shot you look at. If you're a Rockets fan, you probably went back and going like, well, if this is the crap that's going to go in.
0: <laughs> exactly. No. Um, so that the Clippers take a 19, uh, they take a 87 to 68 lead and then take an 89 to 70 lead. And from that point on... <laughs> It gets, oh boy. Everything goes downhill. And what's weird is like, uh, as Mo and I were discussing before we started recording, like you forget how many chances the Clippers had to kind of stop the bleeding. Like it it wasn't like, like I, I will say the lead dwindled pretty quickly. Like within a minute and a half, Houston had it down to 10. And then the Clippers hit a three to make it 13 going to the fourth. But it wasn't like, like, I think if you actually looked at the total amount of time the Clippers led by 19 uh, points, it was under a minute. Like, it was it was right. probably closer to 30 seconds. So it wasn't like they had this... I think the way things, you know, game of telephone or just the way people remember stuff is like, you know, people, people act like they had this 19-point lead for like 10 minutes. And, you know, like, yes, if you have a 19-point lead, you should not blow that. But I do think, like... They were on, a, you know, they were on a really big run. They stretched it to nineteen, and, and then Houston went on an even bigger run to to end up winning the game. But that, you know, really from that point on, everything was downhill. And you know, so Doc takes out Chris, uh, you know, just before the two minute mark in the third for a minute, and that's when that run starts. And Doc, to his credit, puts Chris back in <laughs> right. a minute later, and is just like, okay, like let's just like let's just put this game away. Um, and doc for, you know, i had kind of remembered it as like doc, maybe keeping Chris and Blake on the bench for too long, but you look at the minutes, uh, you know, DJ Blake, DJ and Blake played 42 minutes. Chris played 41. Like it's hard to play those guys more minutes. Right. Uh, I mean, Trevor Ariza played 45, Dwight played 40. So like Houston was also playing some pretty heavy minutes, but I think though, the before we get into the minutia of like tactical things that we would change. I think there's a larger conversation to be had here that I almost felt like this team upon watching the game, upon looking at the the regular season numbers and the postseason numbers for, you know, this year's team or, you know, the 2014, 15 Clippers, this team to me was on borrowed time and right. whether they beat the Rockets and made the conference finals and played the Warriors, a team that they had beaten the season before in the first round. And, you know, so the Warriors had become technically the Warriors. They won 67 games. They were the one seed. But, you know, the Clippers still had some level of mental edge over them. Um, And, you know, I, I think I would have favored the Warriors in that series, but it would not have shocked me if the Clippers had won. You know, in the years after that, it would have shocked me if the Clippers beat the Warriors. Um, and then they would have played Cleveland in the finals if they got that far. And who knows? I mean, LeBron almost won that's, you know, almost beat the warriors without Kyrie Irving uh, and Kevin love. So, you know, it, I, I think he would have been a really bad matchup for that Clippers team. Uh, you know, with, with, really like those warriors teams had, you know, Iguodala, Harrison Barnes, Clay Thompson, um, you know, multiple guys to throw at LeBron, this Clippers team, really was lacking for perimeter defense um, with, with size. And, it, you know, you can't put J.J. Redick or Jamal Crawford on LeBron James. So, you know, Matt Barnes would have had to have been playing like over 40 minutes. Uh, you might have had to dust out like Dante Jones. It would have been really bad. But the the larger thing I was, I was trying to get to was this team really, if we're being honest, had six and a half guys you could trust. It was the starters plus Jamal Crawford and then Austin Rivers at this point in his career was kind of an every-other-night guy. Then after that, it's Glenn Big Baby Davis, who was close to retiring, Spencer Hawes, who was close to retiring, and Hugh Turkoglu, who was close to retiring. Like, and, and then the other two guys on the playoff roster were Dante Jones and Lester Hudson, like, and Epe Udo, uh, who was also close to retiring. So like, this was a year the Clippers made a bunch of gambles uh, on personnel moves. Uh, Chris Douglas-Roberts, Jordan Farmar, Nate Robinson. Uh, they, they chose Jared Cunningham over Joe Ingles. Like, they made a bunch of decisions and, and gambles for either young talent that just wasn't that good or older guys who are past their prime. And it really blew up in their face. And depth had always kind of been an issue for Lob City uh, to, to some extent. And if you really kind of look at some of the rosters, they, they were very top heavy. But this was kind of the, the one year that they were the most top heavy and every other season they at least had like seven or eight guys you could kind of trust. This was the one year it was really like after Jamal who, who we'll get into in a bit, like I don't know who else you trust because Austin really was like, you know, he he had a big uh, game three uh, against Houston, but you know, had a, had a bad game six and and he was kind of the same way in the Spurs series. So this just to me was almost a larger issue of, you know, did it mean the Clippers had to collapse this way? No, but they were playing their starters a bunch of minutes, and, and they've been doing and that. And Chris is coming th- off, and Chris is
1: coming off the hamstring. Yep, too. So, you know, uh, sorry to cut you off no, there, no, but just no. that's an important distinction to make too. Like he's playing forty, basically forty one minutes in this game, and had to
0: miss a game in this series because of a hamstring, and that
1: stuff doesn't just kind of come back quickly
0: and because of the scheduling and the fact that they went to seven games with the Spurs the Clippers had actually played every other day up to this point in the playoffs so their first 13 playoff games were on an every other day schedule so they didn't have any time off really um you know they did not have time to prepare for the rockets uh so i think um and actually as danny chow of grantland had written um and this was data provided to him from the uh, Elias Sports Bureau in 2015, the Clippers had played their starters 73% of their total minutes, which was the most during the 2015 postseason. And if you take out the three blowouts in in the series, game three, four, and five, that number balloons to 76%, which was the most um, Danny had written of any contender since, the 5 Suns and Pistons. So again, this was a very top-heavy team that was dealing with the injury to Chris Paul, ha- had no depth, and had a really grueling playoff schedule where they were playing every other day with no rest. So I think you kind of put that all together and you have a recipe for a collapse. You have a recipe for Blake Griffin looking tired and, and not attacking the rim in the fourth quarter. Like, you, you have a recipe for the Clippers... You know to to stop running and to stop getting out in transition and to really slow the game to a crawl and that end up costing them. So where I was going with all this was just I think in the macro sense, you know, we we can have the micro conversation of this game, those final 14 minutes, what went wrong, what could have been different, but overall, whether it was game six or game five against the Warriors or game five against the Cavs. I don't think this team really was going to win a championship with the depth that they had. I just don't think it was possible. I think they were going to run out of gas at some point. And it just so happened that, you know, maybe if they, let's say they beat the Spurs in five or six games, you know, maybe they don't run out of gas till the conference finals. But this team was gassed and had been on a grueling stretch of games. So I think that to me kind of, paints more the narrative of, of what had happened and kind of explains it a little bit more. Like, yes, there were mistakes they made. Yes, there are things they could have done differently. But overall, I just think they were on borrowed time with, you know, it was a matter of time until their lack of depth ended up costing them.
1: Yeah, I mean, even if they say the Clippers do beat Houston in game seven, having played 14 games in that stretch, were playing basically every other night. You know, they have a team in, Golden state who was chomping at the bits to play this team. Cause the, the Clippers had eliminated them the year before in a, in a seven game series, you know, like what was waiting for them? Like, I honestly think they lose in the conference finals just because of the, those points you've made. Like, I just think they run out of gas. I just don't think they have, you know, the juice at that point to, to get ready for another slug match. I mean, you know, two, seven game series is brutal. and, you know, you add on top of that going into a a conference final somewhere where none of these guys had ever really been before. Then you have, uh, and, and same for the Warriors, none of those guys had been that far before as well. But then you have a level of like, well, this team's rested. And I would even bet that the Warriors were probably hungrier to take on the Clips than the other way around. So I think that's something there. So I'm with you in that sense of like, this wasn't the team I think that their best chance to win a championship, I think. The year before when they lost to Oklahoma City, was was that best chance. And then the year um, when uh, Blake uh, twisted his ankle against Memphis, you know, and and we we're up two zero in that series. I think we had a pretty good shot then to to win a ring. So I think those were the the best chances for Live City. But I didn't, I didn't, I don't really feel like this team was going to win a championship this year.
0: So, you're saying the two years you were there? Th- well, I mean, areas. it's not a mistake. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, let, let, let's get into the, the minutiae here then. Um, you know, I, I rewatched this game twice and I had actually never rewatched it. I had watched like the condensed YouTube versions of, of the highlights and the lowlights of the game, but I, I never watched it. And I was at the game, so I didn't hear the broadcast version of it. But this is my first time hearing the broadcast version. Uh, it was John Barry and Mike Tarico for ESPN. And I thought John Barry, who I feel like is someone who, who I think he's kind of polarizing, polarizing just in terms of like, you know, some people like him, some people don't. He's not like a controversial broadcaster, but, um, you know, I, I feel like he, he gets some mixed reviews. Like I, I thought he did a really good job uh, in this game and. and really like w- was calling trends out as they were happening. And I was kind of feel it like, you know, I, I will say <laughs> I don't always agree with broadcasts and, and what's being said, but this was one of those games where I was like, yeah, pretty much everything John Barry is saying. I mean, it was interesting seeing like, like he was acting like 56, uh, the Rockets are like 56 points late in the second quarter. And he was acting like this was some, you know, he's acting like they had 90 points or something like, he right. was like. You know, Doc must not believe that they had this many points deep in the the second. And I was just like, "This shows how much basketball has changed just in the last few years." Um, You know, that was more of like an old school mentality. But I think overall, like, you know, there there was a lot of good points that were made, and it was interesting listening to it from the broadcast perspective and kind of hearing the collapse happening as you know we were experiencing it in, in the arena. Um, but before I kind of go into my list of of things that I would do differently, what was like w- one of the one or two things that jumped out to you upon rewatching this? You know, so watching it, you know the 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 run when they're
1: building the lead and everything. You know, I kind of forgot how important I felt Matt Barnes was to this team. And it, listen, he didn't have a great shooting night. I think he went, gosh, he he, he shot terribly from three. Uh, went one for eight from three and things like that. But you know, the thing that I thought Matt brought to the table besides defensively uh, being one of those big guards that you kind of reference that can take on, defend the wings and things like that was that he ran the lane and they got out in transition. They finished with 24 fast break points. Now I couldn't find the box score breakdown, but I bet if you looked at it in the fourth quarter, I bet they had zero to maybe two fast break points in the fourth quarter. Like they kind of stopped running And make no mistake, like Barnes only plays three or four minutes in that quarter. And I think he was a key into leaking out. And, you know, when you watch it in the course of the game, you know, in the first three quarters, they're getting fast break transition buckets off of made baskets as well. Like they're pushing it and kicking it up right away and, and getting flying. You're having things like, you know, in the first or second quarter, the CP's driving and he leaves a dump off pass for a big dunk for Blake. You know, Blake's driving, you know, grabs a rebound and goes, finds Barnes for, for a layup and things like they're out there and they're, they're flying. And I think Barnes was a big, and I probably didn't notice it at the time, but you know, he was a big aspect of kind of, Pushing the ball and 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 running the lane and running the wing, you know, to kind of get them out and transition and get going. So I think that was a uh, important uh, part to the uh, their their offense that I think they fell off of in the fourth quarter. And I think the rotation in the fourth is you know uh, a problem. That's my other big takeaway. There is you know I think Doc, you know. Barnes misses a, a a wide open three. And I think Doc kind of panicked in the fourth quarter, pulled him out and put uh, Jamal Crawford in. So now you have J.J. Redick and Jamal Crawford on your wings. And defensively, that's probably not ideal uh, in that sense. And and I think you end up, the offense tends to kind of grind a halt there at that point, And they're not out in transition as much. They're not defending as well. I think there was a, a lot of issues there and i think that would have been a uh something i think you know maybe in the last four minutes i probably would have thrown matt out there for for jamal or for jj yeah
0: we we we, we feel the same um i it's it's fascinating you say that because matt was really the only three on this team they, they did play some of those three guard lineups and you know austin and jamal what's Austin, Jamal, or JJ would be the three, depending on how you you viewed it. Um, I think a point you had made before the podcast that that stuck with me was it almost seemed like the Clippers didn't know what to do without James Harden because yep. they, they had schemed for him. You you know, I, I will say like they defended James Harden. Well, I mean, it's just it's funny seeing like what Houston has become because. Watching this was like jarring just the way Houston ran their offense and how much yeah, right? you know, how it was, different it was.
1: Some of this um, was a trip. I was like, yeah. <laughs> like I've never seen Harden. James
0: Harden not have the ball in his hands, like, you know, or have the ball in his hands this little. Not um, even that. Just he pulled up for like a couple of mid-range shots, and I was like, what? He does <laughs> I forgot he does that. <laughs> what? and he he had a step back that he airballed. And, <laughs> and it was like it was it was just weird. And you know, they had all these Post touches for Dwight. Um, Dw- Dwight, I-, I will say, in my opinion, was the best player in this game. Um, like I mean, Blake had- was the best guy through three quarters, but overall, the breadth of the performance I thought was Dwight.
1: I mean, yeah, he had a twenty and twenty game, twenty points and twenty one rebounds. I mean, like you know, he was he was there, like he was present, you know, and and you know, two blocks and 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 a physical presence and a flagrant foul and and things like that, and however you want to look at it, but. I think, you know, he was present, whereas you looked at it with with James Harden, like, you know, we touched on it. Five of 20 is a terrible field goal percentage. He got a lot of his points from the line, 11 for 11 from the free throw line, doesn't play the fourth quarter and is the only rocket starter to not have a positive plus minus. Everybody else is plus 11, you know, 15, plus 12, Harden's a minus 21 and they don't and, and and you got to give kudos to uh, McHale for for just not playing him in the fourth quarter during that run. And
0: yeah, he he was going like he was going down, and that probably cost him his job <laughs> later <laughs> that, yeah. with the Rockets. Because I'm sure James Harden did not forget that. Um, and, and it almost seemed like this is pure speculation, but it, it just almost felt like James was like hoping the run would stop because there was multiple sequences there where they'd show the Rockets bench. Everyone's up cheering, losing their mind. And James is just sitting down with his arms crossed with, with a towel draped over his neck. And you're like, this guy clearly is like not happy uh, with, with, with what's going on. But to your point about Matt Barnes, he was a team best plus seven. Uh, and the second best guy in terms of plus minus. And the second best guy was JJ Reddick plus three. And I thought, you know, it was hard to find more minutes for Blake and DJ and Chris without entering that like, you know, injury risk, you know, potential, and also just like a, an effectiveness loss. Like, you can play a, you know, guys can play a full game, but you're going to be dead by the fourth quarter if you're if you're playing a full game, um, w- without any breaks. So, like, I thought Doc really maximized those guys' minutes, but JJ at 36 minutes and Matt especially at only 31 minutes, like the one. I think the one knock you can give against Matt was that not only did he not shoot the ball well, but he was the one shooter that they really played off of. Like, you know, JJ, they were stuck to. They'd put Trevor Ariza, Corey Brewer on him and just basically live in JJ's jersey. Uh, And then Chris obviously, you know, had the ball in his hands a lot. So you had Jason Terry and Pablo Prigioni pressuring him. But in terms of Matt Barnes, Austin Rivers, Jamal Crawford, They played off all of them, but they just completely ignored Matt Barnes. Like the game plan was clearly, we don't trust Matt Barnes shooting, and if you're, um, you know, defending Matt Barnes, you're basically in the paint. And the other aspect of this that I think was was really kind of jarring was you kind of like forget how poor the Blake DJ spacing was, yeah, um, or at least (laughs) I had, and you know, it, it is weird seeing the the level of shooter Blake has become, you know, deeper into his career in, in, in Detroit. Now he's hitting like step back off the dribble threes. But at this point, he was still kind of a shaky mid-range. Like this was kind of the first year he had become like a reliable mid-range shooter, but he was still kind of shaky, uh, you know, missed a couple in the fourth. And I just think what you saw was the instances in which he did drive in the fourth, because Blake did not score in the fourth and was zero for five. And I think this is where I want to take my next point um, was just the the difference between Blake in the first three quarters and the the fourth quarter. Um, you know, the first three quarters, Blake's getting out in transition. They're running isos for him. They're running post ups for him. They're even running a four one pick and roll where you know Chris Paul's screening for Blake multiple times to give him a runway. Ahead of steam to attack Jason, you know he dunked on Jason Terry one time, um, or, or just getting to the rim. Like Blake was living at the rim, was twelve of fifteen through three quarters, and just really, you know, aside from Dwight Howard, who, who of course is you know multi-time Defensive Player of the Year, one of the all-time best rim protectors. Like you know, aside from when he was matched up with him, if it was Josh Smith or Terrence Jones, Blake was getting by them, scoring, getting fouled. Um, or, or kicking out to shooters that they were playing off of. And that went away entirely in the fourth quarter. And while I do in part, you know, you got to put some of that on Blake. He, he did look a little bit scared out there. Um, and I thought he he was, you know, the first three quarters, he was, he was finishing with power. He was drawing contact. He was going up strong. In the fourth quarter, all of a sudden, he starts taking off from like eight feet from the rim and like trying to loft in these like, left-handed scoops and like, you know, kind of lefty layups where you're like, I, it was almost kind of playing finessly. And I don't even know if that's a word, playing with finesse, whatever. It's okay. Make them up. It's okay. You're a writer. You get to up. do that now. That's what uh, do. But, but the, the big thing was like the, anytime Blake drove DJ was there and his man was there. And it was like, Blake was never driving into open. You know, it was always basically driving into two defenders at a minimum. And what I thought Houston really did well in that fourth, Um, I think Houston doesn't get enough credit. Like, you know, yes, this, this was more of a collapse than a comeback, but Houston, particularly that lineup they went with Jason Terry, who's not been known for his defense, did a great job getting into Chris Paul and really pressuring him. Corey Brewer, Trevor Riza and Josh Smith are the type of long defenders that really bothered the Clippers during this era because they were so small, especially on the perimeter. And they just really packed the paint. And every time Blake drove, even if he was getting semi open looks, there was always four or five guys around him. And, you know, one time he got blocked by Dwight. He got blocked a couple times by Josh Smith. One time was a foul. They didn't call it. But still, like, he was just always driving into bodies. Right. And part of that was because DJ was always in the paint. And that you, you just kind of saw the limitations schematically of having two, you know, a, a paint bound center and then a guy who, thrives in the paint as well you know he didn't have to be in the paint but Blake you know you want Blake on the block versus taking a 18 foot jumper so i just thought you saw some of the limitations of that pairing kind of rear their head in that fourth quarter
1: yeah and i think that's been a long issue for the uh the the lob city team right is you know the 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 Blake and DJ pairing was just never perfect and they never found enough wings to be able to be like okay we're gonna play Blake at the five and just go go small and that small really also wasn't a thing that had kind of blown up but something you said too that's kind of important is we don't always give the Rockets enough credit I mean they stiffened up defensively they they also got in the transition a little bit more uh you know Corey Brewer had the the quarter of his life I mean he had 15 points and that's the same amount of points the Clippers had for that entire fourth quarter. You know, Josh Smith, who let's be honest, like around that time when he got picked up off waiver wires from, from Detroit, you know, nobody was expecting him to blow up, but he has an unbelievable fourth quarter with 14 points, three of four from three. Like, you know, that's crazy. You know, these are those things where it just kind of catches you off guard. And I think, you know, to your point about Blake and the, and, and the, the DJ issue, I mean, that was just a problem. And there were a couple of bunnies that he missed as well, you know, but he's he's got to be able to finish in traffic. And that was a challenge there. And, and you know, I think he, what you saw on this team, I don't know how much you felt it, Yoban, but as the game got closer and closer, and, and and even as the Rockets were taking the lead, you felt everybody rush and panic to a degree. And, and that was you know, when we talk about the worst of Lob City, I mean, that was kind of a characteristic of them, you know, and that's odd considering how good CP is in clutch, but there were times where he, you could feel like even he was rushing and, and panicked and there were, there were definitely some issues there in that sense. So I think that's kind of really where that downfall happened for this team is just, you know, their, their inability to kind of stay calm and, you know, like I mean shoot, they don't even get a field goal till the the final, you know the last 6 minutes, they only get one field goal and that's the the last one. You know, that's like a, a
0: CP heave for 3 at the end of the game
1: to just make it 107 instead of 104.
0: Well, and, and that was one of the interesting things of this game is uh, again as we were talking about before the pod like they have so many chances in, in the fourth and you know JJ hits a 3 with 8 minutes left to bring it to 12 Chris gets a layup at the 647 mark, which is their last field goal until the two-second mark. And they're tied with four minutes left, and they end up almost losing the game by 15 points. Like, it's just insane how... And I I will say, too, like, I I didn't think... There was a few defensive lapses. Um, Like, there was the one drive Josh Smith had where you know, he was running a pick and roll basically with Dwight and Dwight seals Blake and is basically holding him, but DJ doesn't come over and just basically gives Josh Smith a, a wide open layup. But Josh Smith hit three ridiculous step back threes. You know, <laughs> right. the, first, the first two Blake semi you know, first one, Blake didn't contest. Second one, he semi contests like, okay, Josh Smith, like take another three. And then the third one, DJ like actually contests him and he makes it, but it's like, That's not bad defense. Like you, you know, if you're James Harden's not on the floor, you're trying to stop this like ragtag. I mean, again, looking at the names again, it's Dwight Howard, who's who's still a good player, clearly, but past his prime. You have Josh Smith, who's barely hanging on to being in the league. You have Trevor Ariza, who's also past his prime, but is still like an effective role player, but is more of a catch and shoot guy. Um, You have Corey Brewer, who's also almost out of the league um and and is still you know just kind of a a, a nice bench piece but not like you know he's not leading your offense and then you have jason terry who's also (laughs) almost out of the league and and is really just like a spot-up shooter at this point so you just have this like 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 looking at the roster or looking at that lineup on paper you're like how the hell does this lineup even score (laughs) like how did this how did these five combine for 40 points in the fourth quarter it's just kind of absurd um, And another thing with this Lob City team was that this was. So if you really look at Lob City, as you mentioned, their three best teams on, you know, it was, it was a six year run, but the three best teams on paper were the 12 13, 13 14, and 14 15 teams. And of those three, this was the worst team defensively by a decent margin. So I do think overall, like this team wasn't. You know they, they weren't great defensively. There was clearly some shortcomings. Uh, Matt Barnes had taken a bit of a step back. Uh, I just thought even watching it, like it was telling to me that they almost exclusively put JJ Redick on James Harden and, and not Matt Barnes. Like you you would think Matt would defend him, um, and, and JJ did a pretty good job. All things considered, like you know Harden got to the free throw line a lot, but um, in, in the actual field goals in which he wasn't fouled, JJ was all over him. Uh, you know he he was shading him to the right spots on the floor, and um, I, I just thought JJ did a pretty good job. But um, I, I think to to bring it to your point of the 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 pace and everyone freezing up, I think you, you got to give Blake some slack for that, um, and you probably got to give Doc a little bit of slack of, of just not maybe enforcing some of this stuff enough and, and he kind of took some blame after the game of like you know it's on me to make sure we're not just running the clock out but the, the two guys I think also deserve some flack after rewatching it one is Chris Paul and I think Chris is I'm going to preface this with saying to me Chris is a top 25 player of all time he's a top three or four point guard And he's a top five passer and decision maker. So I'm going to sing his praises and say, like, I think he's amazing. I I think he's very underrated historically in NBA history. And I think he's better than most people think he is. But one of Chris's worst habits was sometimes he was almost too smart for his own good. And during that last seven minute stretch where the Clippers had one field goal, they only took one shot within the first 10 seconds of the shot clock. So every every other possession that they had was milking the clock over ten seconds, and who was handling the ball in most of those instances? Chris Paul, right. So I, I just think, and then on top of it, like who's kind of in charge of setting up Blake in his spots? Chris Paul, and I, I don't want to put it all on Chris because I think you know it's a pie chart, and, and you're going to kind of give blame. You know, you're going to kind of divvy it up however you see it. So I, I don't think he deserves the bulk of it, but I do think for me, the two things that stood out were the Clippers had 24 fast break points in the first three quarters, zero in the, f- in the fourth quarter, Blake Griffin was the best player through the, the the first three quarters, did not get a great look in my opinion in the fourth quarter. So I do think like part of that is on Chris as the point guard, as the floor general, as the facilitator. And more often than not, he was walking the ball up the floor he was running the offense. He he was, you know, just kind of slowing things down. And I think this was an instance in which he was too smart for his own good, kind of overthought things. And I think if he could go back and have a do-over, he would have pushed the pace more. He would have tried to find Matt and Blake and, and DJ out in transition and really just tried to ram the ball down the Rockets' throats and extend that lead instead of preserving.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a thing. Like, I think the they began to play in the fourth quarter not to lose instead of to win the game, right? And we've seen it in, I mean, God, how many sports have we seen that in football, baseball, basketball? I don't know about baseball. I'm not a baseball guy, as you guys can tell. Um, (laughs) But, you know, you you can sense that they are not um, as aggressive, you know, and and they were a good, listen, they were a good half-court offensive team during the regular season. They were a good half, they were, really good transition team, you know, that season. And I think, you know, but once they began to play that, you know, prevent style defense that we see in football, you know, you begin to allow the Rockets to start build up and that momentum. And then every miss after that begins to compound and you begin to get a little more stressed and a little more nervous. And and I think that's what happened to the squad. And I think that those are the issues that sort of led to this breakdown and and I'm with you, like they should have just continued to push the pace. Cause the, you know, the Rockets weren't getting back in transition defense. Like that wasn't their game, you know? So it's, it should have just been a constant thing of like, let's get out and running. Like, let's not, let's not stay in the half court. And, you know, as soon as you sit there and start trying to milk the clock with eight minutes left in the game, like that's way too early to start doing that, you know? And, and, and I think those are all the issues that kind of led to this whole, crushing you you, you know uh 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 letdown. i mean this this is this is a a collapse of collapses i mean you you know just a pure fact of like clipper fans still talk about it you know and it it, it was a brutal loss
0: and like if this was a regular season game this would be a brutal collapse but this was like i mean it it was just you are going from
1: you are going from midway to the third and you could see it in the crowd ecstasy people are fired up like this is this is the loudest staples center has ever been for the clippers at any point up to this this point in their their, their tenure in la like they're all behind them everybody's wearing those blue shirts everybody's pumped up you have steve bomber going completely nuts on the sideline like everybody's feeling it like this is going to happen we're finally going to break through and get to the conference finals and then to watch it just kind of fall, off, you know, fall apart on you, you know, it's like going, living up the, the highest of highs to dropping like the stock market straight down to the lowest of lows. It's just a brutal, brutal kick in the nuts for fans. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, there's no other way to describe I mean, yeah. it, right? Yeah. Like, and, and w- one person that I, I want to, so I, I said that I, I think there are two people that we need to discuss the last one. I know he's your boy. He's my boy, too. Um, Jamal. Uh, Jamal was a, again, I think I already said this, but was a game-worst minus 27 in the plus-minus department. And I know that can be like a loaded and, and you know noisy metric that game-to-game game doesn't really tell you much, but this had been a trend for Jamal in this postseason, which probably was his worst postseason as a Clipper. Uh, overall, averaged 12.7 points on 36% shooting and 24.2% three-point shooting, which is just like, you know, that's Rondo level. You know, that's worse than Rondo level. That's like Antoine Walker, you know, jacking up a bunch of threes level. And in this game in particular, I thought, you know, what's funny is we're talking about the pace and and how early they're taking shots and stuff. I thought there was a few possessions, especially in the fourth, that Jamal rushed in. You know, this was pre that seven-minute mark. That Jamal just rushed things and kind of just went one on one, broke his man down, flung up like a 10, 12 foot runner floater that missed. And they'd even been talking about on the broadcast that heading into this game, Jamal had been struggling. And again, to go back to the plus minus thing, in six of the Clippers' seven losses in this postseason, Jamal was a negative in the plus minus, which, uh, you know, is wasn't the case for all of the the key guys so it you know it was a Jamal kind of trend but in the last 3 games of this series in particular he was a minus 62 in their three losses so i just think you know Jamal is someone that is a beloved figure in Clipper history a lot of people wanted them to resign him this season and you know won a couple six man of the year awards for the clippers is one of the nicest guys in the nba And with the media, Um, but he did have some bad habits and some, you know, some, some poor shot selection on top of which, you know, you're now factoring in his bad defense, which, you know, trying to get him to navigate a on or off ball screen was just not going to happen. You know, there, there was multiple breakdowns earlier in the game through the first three quarters that Jamal had that led to open layups and threes. And, and offensive rebounds. And I just think this was a game. I mean, you, you, it's hindsight's 20 2020, but this was a game that he only played 24 minutes. It felt like he played more and Austin played 14. I would have actually liked to see that probably closer to even because Austin was a better defender. He was not what he became later on in, in LA and Houston, but he was a, the better defender and he was the better three point shooter. He only went over, you know, he went over three in game six, but, I just thought Austin was taking less off the table than Jamal was. And Jamal's minutes to me really were crippling. Um, as you said, like he and JJ should not have really played together. Uh, and I just think, you know, I, I don't, again, I don't want to put it all in one person. I, I think equal parties share equal blame, but I, I felt Jamal's performance, not only in this game, but really in the playoffs at large, uh, really hurt this team while he was on them.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, and I love Jamal, so this hurts me a little bit anytime I got to kind of be honest about his offense. But, like, you know, him in the playoffs just was never really a great thing. I mean, he's a career 35% three point shooter, but in the playoffs,
0: 30%,
1: you know, and I think some of that has to be. That's with- a big,
0: you know, it sounds like 5%, but that's a big difference.
1: I mean shoot 3% is a massive difference right like and in the playoffs when every shot matters like it's 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 really difficult and I think that's where it gets tough and, and and for Jamal I think you know the playoffs are more physical they they can get defenses can get away with holding you a little more and grabbing you more and things like that it's it's much more of a physical game and I think that's kind of something that really sort of held Jamal's game back a bit in the playoffs. And I think that ended up being a, a difficulty thing. And that's across the board through all of his playoff runs. And and I think that's something I always kind of look at for, for, you know, guys that are, are scores and run off screens a lot. I, I try to see how physical they are and he just wasn't that physical with defenders. And if you roughed him up, it was difficult and you can get into them a bit. You know, I the one thing I'd say is, you know, you were saying you you wanted to see Jamal and Austin's minutes a little more even. I actually would like to have seen some of those fourth quarter minutes from Jamal go to Matt.
0: Well yeah, no, no. I, I think we're in agreement that Matt should have played more. I, I just think um like if you like you you couldn't play I mean maybe you could have played all f- five starters 40 minutes, but you still were gonna have the other um, you know, forty minutes or so that you're going to have to disperse to the bench, and I just thought, you know, like by no means was Austin great, um, right? No, like, you know, like yeah, well, I'm, I'm just saying that the 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 ten minute difference to me was a little bit much. With like t- to me, J- Jamal, and what's funny is like I think Jamal and Lou are very similar, um, and I, I think Lou the past couple of years has been better than Jamal was like if you compare their peak seasons, I, I think the past couple of years of Lou was better than Jamal's like be- even best season in LA, but they both kind of had this thing. And I think Lou's more clutch than Jamal. Um, but with Jamal, I always felt like you kind of knew within his first four or five shots, what type of night it was going to be. And yes, there were the exceptions of like, you know, he he has having a bad night and then he hits a clutch three or he makes a, you know, Two or three baskets in the fourth that kind of swing a game, but there to me it was almost it felt like seven or eight out of ten times, if Jamal started a game one for five, he was going to go like three for thirteen, and you just kind of knew that night like we probably shouldn't rely on him. And and this to me was that ultimate example of like he never really had a flow offensively, and never you know did have uh, you know a couple layups. I think I want to say in in the second quarter. Uh, but aside from that, it was like he never really got going. And and to me, if he's not going, like like he's out there to be instant offense, like that's what he provided as well as anyone off the bench, you know, potentially in NBA history. But if he's not providing that, he's not rebounding, he's not defending, he's not really playmaking for others. And I, I just felt that was you know kind of kind of a a, a miscue on, on the coaching staff's part. Of like, I I just don't think he. The, the minutes he played deserve, you know, deserve to be as high as twenty four. But I'm with you. Like I think Matt Barnes should have played more. I thought he had played more than thirty one. Once I saw thirty one, I was like, that's way too low. Um, but the other thing, w- which this is a larger trend too, in, in kind of Lob City, is you know, yes, Chris Paul had the the game five against OKC in, in you know, the last fifty seconds, and, and Blake had some notable. Uh, poor performances in fourth quarters and, and just key games where you kind of wanted Blake to take the next step as like a top five player. But I will say that I did feel like even when they, like whether they had depth or not, the guys that they had in it, you know, in this instance, it was JJ, Matt Austin. um, But you could go down the list with other guys. It always felt like the Clippers role players, played much better in the regular season than the playoffs. and like you know I, I don't think JJ's splits are as, as bad as Jamal's, but JJ was another guy who kind of performed worse in the postseason and, and shot worse that, than he did in the regular season and you know he was he was also 413 in game six, you know three of nine from deep. Um, you know Austin was 0 of three from deep, two of eight from the floor. like I just think this team on like on top of just not having depth, like the depth that they had, outside of their three stars was a bit inconsistent and you just never knew what you were going to get night to night. And like, if they had ideally it would have been JJ, but like, if they had that kind of fourth guy who you could, you know, and that's why golden state was so tough. It was just that they had so many reliable guys that on an, you know, even if one guy had an off night, you knew you had four or five guys that were going to step up. Like it just, it never felt like that with the Clippers where most of the time, Blake and Chris were going to give you their, 25 you know 20 to 30 points somewhere in there but after that it was like it's a crapshoot like maybe jj's going off maybe it's jamal maybe it's matt maybe it's nobody and you know this game was kind of one of those games where you know jj did have 15 points but it was a very quiet 15 points aside from the third quarter run
1: yeah and i think the the um the the idea here this is something that Doc said when he first came to the Clippers and it, and it always kind of stayed with me and it, and it makes sense. And it might be the reason why he had JJ and Jamal out there at the same time. And, you know, the one thing Doc kind of always said was he always felt like in every playoff series he lost, he never had enough shooting out there. And so, like, he would always pick the guys that could, you know, that that were shooters or guys that were perceived as shooters. So, you know, and, and, and I think that's what led to these these issues, but, you know, they just, as you said, that even when I was there, it was just, we could never find the right combination of guys, you know, that could really help take this team to the next level. That, that Clipper team that went in Vinnie's last year, that went undefeated in December or whatever, was probably the deepest we were. And that was, you know, cause we had like almost a whole different type of team coming off the bench. We had Eric Bloodsoe coming and causing complete chaos defensively um, and, and and blowing games open and things like that. You know, we had uh, Jamal coming in and kind of stabilizing the offense. You know, w- once uh, Chauncey got healthy, we had another ball handler to help Chris and things like that. Like there were just always these issues. But after when Doc came, the one thing about this team that always was something that I don't think ever really gets addressed is, there was no other ball handler than Chris. Now maybe part of that was Chris wasn't willing to give up the ball as much, you know, and and, and the expectation was Blake was going to be the other ball handler, the other playmaker, but it always felt like this team needed one more guy to create for everybody else. And I don't think they had ever found that. And I think that's ultimately what, what held this team back in the long run.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. I, I think I, I noticed I noticed that too. And it was, I mean, again, like if, if you're kind of looking at the position, I mean, it was just, it was literally like the starters plus like a streaky bench scorer right. in, in Jamal. And then Big Baby, I, I, I mean, I knew he was big. I forgot how big he was. Uh, I was <laughs> like how, uh, you know, don't he, get a nickname <laughs> like
1: Big Baby if you're not big, man. Like it, it was,
0: yeah. And he just, you know, did not do anything. This game, Spencer Hawes was another kind of failed gamble by the Clippers. Um, you know, d- didn't do anything. Um, and then again, Austin, like w- was really a crapshoot of, of you, you know, one night he might give you 21 night. He's going to give you four points on two of eight shooting. And I, I just, it, it was like, you know, they didn't have, you know, you're saying they didn't have another ball handler. Like, They didn't really have a third big. (laughs) Right. You know, like (laughs) it was – I mean, and that's the thing where I I think you you can give Blake flack for, you know, whatever you want in the fourth. But you just got to imagine how tired he was. And, you know, having the couple games without Chris and and putting the team on his back and playing so many minutes. um, You know, one of the big trends, you know, that had happened from this season going to the next season – Was Doc really reduced everyone's minutes in the 2015 16 season? I don't think anyone played more than 33 minutes that season. So I think, you know, they did kind of learn from this a little bit and, and, you know, tried to reduce the workload in the regular season, giving them more energy and, and, you know, verve in the postseason. But it just didn't matter again because that next postseason, you got you know Chris and Blake both go down in that game four in Portland, and then uh, in the next postseason, Blake goes down in game three against Utah, and it's it's over. They lose in the first round. The next two years, Chris gets traded to Houston. Clippers later trade Blake to Detroit, and then DJ goes and signs with uh, Dallas. So, you know that that was it. This was I mean this was the this was the year, and I agree with you. I, I think. Uh, if you had just swapped in, literally any other bench of the Lob City era, um, I think this team wins the series and, and maybe even beats the Warriors and wins the like. You know, they they at this time had not gotten their butts kicked too many times by the Warriors. Right. like they didn't believe they could beat them, they still had like a, a shot against them. Um, a, again, like because they they were potentially going to play them. In that 2016 postseason, uh, in the second round, if they had gotten by Portland, and that was the year Steph slipped on D- uh, Donatus Montiunis' sweat and was injured and, and missed, you know, the first couple of games of that series, so Clippers would have had a shot, I guess, in that series. But I, I think ultimately Steph would have come back, and the Warriors would have won. Uh, but that 2015 year was kind of, you know, the, the Cavs hadn't become what they had become. Yet, uh, you know, the Warriors hadn't officially become what they had become yet. Like the the Clippers still had a shot to win the title. After that, it was over, and this collapse, I think, mentally kind of sealed that. Like it it was, it was just done. Um, But any other takeaways or things we didn't talk about from this game?
1: No, I think the one thing that kind of early on in this game, when I was watching it, I did kind of forget. Like, wow, how fun was that team though? Like when they were rolling. It was a lot of fun to watch, you know, and, and I was I'm kind of disappointed that they were never able to kind of put it together for a a, a finals run. Obviously disappointed when I was there would have liked <laughs> to have had that happen when I was there. But you, I did kind of forget, like, man, how athletic Blake is. You mentioned it, you know, in the beginning of the pod, you know, I kind of forgot how well, you know, CP found guys and, 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 and created and just kind of like how well this sort of thing. Built, I mean, Doc has a great play to start the third quarter to get JJ a corner three, and it's really a misdirection into that stuff. Like they were they were deep into their bag, and I was kind of watching it, just going like, "Man, this was a fun team at one point." I mean, there are a lot of issues with it—the complaining to the refs and the constant all that stuff that that's always plagued that team. But overall, like Lob City at its purest, was kind of. Was, was kind of fun man I, I i enjoyed those guys when they were rolling so um that was kind of my biggest surprise something that i had forgotten and then i had forgotten they changed the logo like this yeah. is the first game i had to watch where i was like oh god that was the court before all this and you know uh and all that stuff so those were kind of like my small takeaways where i was just like oh wow yeah i forgot about
0: i think for me what one more thing on the on the chris front um it was a little odd to me. Like, like Chris had this thing where he would kind of pick his spots for the first three quarters and, and get guys going. And, you know, if, if you look at a lot of his assist numbers, if he had 10 assists in a game, it would usually be like, you know, seven assists through the first three quarters or eight assists through the first three quarters. And the fourth quarter, he's more of the aggressor. He, he's the closer. You know, he, he is one of the best clutch and and crunch time guys in nba history and you know literally a week and a half earlier hits that game winning shot in in game seven against the the spurs over the outstretched arms of Tim duncan and you know he had that shot over tony allen in, in the playoffs and just you know he he's had many clutch moments and aside from that 50 second slip up against the thunder like pretty much you know, does not really have many mistakes, or or you know, had has had plenty of clutch moments with the Rockets. Uh, you know, in against the Warriors, and you know, I thought was the the best player in that 2018 series b- before he went down. So, you know, Chris has an unassailable crunch time resume, but in this game in particular, I, I thought on top of like the overthinking with like the pace and and running out the clock and stuff, I just thought he didn't take advantage of the fact that he had two old dudes guarding him. Like Jason Terry played a good defensive game, but Jason Terry was not a lockdown defender. Like that was not what he was known for. And he did have some size and length on, on Chris. Um, But Chris was younger and and Chris was still, you know, in that all NBA first, second team conversation, still an all-star like, and and you saw moments of it, um, you know, including in that third quarter where he would just took, you know, I think he took over for like two or three possessions. One, he drives on Harden, gets an and one. One, he does the Steve Nash and dribbles under the basket and then pulls up on the other side. And, you know, he would have these flashes where he would just take, and he still, like, he had 31 points uh, at 11 assists. It's not like he he didn't score, but I just felt with Jason Terry and Pablo Prigioni, like, it's one thing that Patrick Beverly was in the series and was playing, I was hounding him, but you had Jason Terry and Pablo Prigioni guarding you. And yes, both guys are wily veterans. And, um, you know, Pablo, we know, is the master at the steals on the backcourt and was just kind of this crafty, sneaky guy. But neither of those guys should have been able to stick with Chris Paul. And I felt Chris did kind of go through a couple phases in the game where he was like, yeah, I'm Chris Paul. Like, I should just do, you know, I can get a basket at any point. Like, let me do that. Um, But I just don't think he balanced that well enough. And like, this might've been a game where he had to get 40. Like, I I think they, they kind of, and and the other thing was they force fed Blake. They still went to Blake in the fourth, but they changed the dynamic where in the first three quarters, it was a lot of post-ups on the left side, on the left block or, or in the left mid post and those 4-1 pick and rolls. But in the fourth, they went to just the traditional 1-4 pick and roll. And it was a lot of, you know, in the middle of the court, they're running the pick and roll, Blake gets the ball inside the arc, and now he's either taking a jumper, which he wasn't hitting in the fourth, or he's driving, but he's driving into a bunch of bodies again. And I just think the, the types of looks that the Clippers were creating for him just didn't make sense to me and we're going against what had worked through the first three quarters. So, um, you know, again, part of that's on Blake, but I do think Chris just ma- was making some questionable decisions and how the offense was being run in that fourth. And I would have liked to see him be a little bit more aggressive. I know he was, you know, he had the hamstring issue, but there was, th- I mean, he took Jason Terry in the post a couple of times in the first half and, and just created good looks over him. Like Jason Terry might have been longer, but Chris Paul was stronger and quicker. And I, I just think that was something that was a little overlooked of like, I, I felt Chris could have created more, a little bit more for himself. And, and all the Clippers really needed, I think, was to stop the bleeding. Like if they had scored, you know, if Blake had, had made one of those layups or DJ missed the dunk, if DJ makes that dunk fr- from a Blake feed, I think they stopped the bleeding. And I think like it, they, they probably won the game. But it was just so bad, and and they missed you know multiple shots in the paint, multiple open three pointers. No one could hit anything, and that just kept snowballing into momentum for the Rockets. So I really think one you know one Chris Paul mid range jumper stops that, gets the Clippers' momentum back, get gets their sense of confidence back, and really I think swings the game. But um, you know they they were still trying to force feed Blake. I just think in inefficient ways, but. That's kind of my last thing. Um, you know, I, I do think overall this was more of a collapse and a comeback, but Houston should get more credit than they have for the defense they played, um, the ridiculous shot making they definitely, had and definitely. Definitely. The, the fact that they scored 40 points with that lineup with no James Harden, you know, is an indictment on the Clippers defense, but it's also in part like the Rockets should get more credit for this. They didn't give up. They, you know, were persistent and and persevered in the fourth and they were the mentally tougher team. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's not even, you
1: you can't have a collapse without the other team taking advantage of it. And that's kind of the way it it, it comes down to it. So, um, yeah, I mean, if, if not for Corey Brewer and, and Josh Smith going completely bonkers in the fourth quarter, combining for 29 points, you know, the, uh, the Clippers probably would have been in the conference finals.
0: Unbelievable, man! It was uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was worse than I remembered it. Rewatching it, that, I mean, that was the thing. It was just like, wow, I, I can't, I can't remember off the top of my head a collapse this bad. Like, I mean, the, the like the Warriors had, you know, coincidentally the Clippers had the thirty-one point comeback in Golden State, which is the biggest playoff comeback of all time. But like, that was almost. The like that was more so, in, in my opinion, the Warriors just not taking them seriously until it was too late and the Clippers were rolling. Um, but that you know, that was not, I don't know, I, I just think it, it was not as bad. Like, this was a team like mentally collapsing in front of our eyes and really just not even being able to score. Like, the Warriors were still scoring, the Clippers were just on this crazy run. You know, the Clippers were on a crazy run for a quarter and a half you know, I think it was the last 19 minutes of that game where this was a 14 minute thing. And really it was like the last six minutes of the game. Like that's where the game changed. It, it was still you know, the Clippers were leading until the four minute mark of the game. So uh it was just yeah. It was just it's a complete brutal. collapse. It's,
1: it was brutal. And and on the flip side, you know, this is the exact opposite of what it was when the Clippers came back against Memphis. Yeah. In that in the first series, uh, the first real series of this Lob City team, you know, and, and and coming back and and winning that game in thrilling fashion. So, you know, it was almost like, all right, well, you got that experience. Now you get to experience this one. Just want to say, probably wouldn't have happened if I was there. I don't know. I probably would stop the bleeding. <laughs> I that's just that's just my final takeaway, Yovanis. Know, so I probably well, would have stopped let, all let, this.
0: Let's end it with this. If let's say hypothetically they win this game, they listen to our expert adjustments and they pull out the game um you know we give them a halftime or an end of third quarter pep talk we're from the future this is what's going to happen if you guys don't listen to us Do xyz they do it they win game six they go to the conference finals what is the result for the clippers 2015 season
1: I I still think they lose to the Warriors. I think the Warriors were hungrier. I think they were eager and really wanted to take this team on. I think they were on an incredible run, and they were a little bit – well, at this point, they'd be rested the same amount. They both would have – both their series would have gone six, but I think the Warriors would be the – would have probably still won. I still think it plays out, and they end up winning the championship.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm with you. I think – I think it would have been a six-game series. I I think the Clippers. I still, you know, I think the like you said earlier that the Warriors had that hunger with the way the first-round series in 2014 ended, and the fact that they felt they should have won. Um, But I, I, I do think, I think the Clippers would have gotten probably one of the two in Golden State one of the two in LA golden state probably has a golden state game and wins game five in like a blowout. And then they come back and win a close game six in LA. So I, you know, I think it, but I, I do think that potentially changes everything with lob city where now they made a conference finals. So that pressures off of Chris and Blake and, and doc Um now you look at that tenure differently instead of saying the most successful team to not make a conference finals. And, you know, who knows if it, maybe that fixes things slightly with, with the Blake Chris dynamic. Maybe it doesn't. Um, maybe Chris resigns in 2017. Maybe he doesn't like, I I don't know how it affects kind of the longer term stuff uh, because again, like if, if, They still lose in the conference finals. They still don't win a title. And I think a title might have been the only thing to, to keep that core together. But I think by 2017, you clearly had a picture of this team's not making the conference finals. They're never winning a title. Like we should blow this up where if you at least make the conference finals one year, don't have a all time collapse. You might be able to point to 2015 and be like, see, here's the blueprint. You know, we just need more depth. We we need more shooting. We need more versatility around our core. And maybe, maybe that team's still playing together. Although as of right now, they wouldn't have been, you know, I, I they wouldn't have been as good as this Clippers team for for sure. So to bring things positively full circle, uh, I think it worked <laughs> out for the Clippers. <laughs> this was this was a therapy session for Clipper fans. Okay, guys. This was us to, exercise Not Kawhi to PG. David's.
1: You know, we got we got rid of that. We're getting rid of the demons. We're ready to, to move on. We have Kawhi PG, uh, and, and and we're making a run. So uh, I would kind of look at this episode as the therapy session <laughs> that we all needed. Sometimes you have to face your past to move on into the future.
0: We just need basketball now. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Mo, thank you for your time. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I know we went a bit over. We always do, do. Man, we always do, man. You and do, I, probably. man. We,
1: it's we it's like never it's short.
0: short. You're doing nothing better right now. You're listening to this podcast. You're enjoying it. You're going through the therapy with us. Um, Mo, where can people find your work on Bleacher Report and The Athletic and find you on the social media?
1: Well, uh, like once said, I write for Bleacher Report. I do a bunch of podcasts for The Athletic, Nerd She Wrote, Brody and the Beard. Uh, I seem to be a reoccurring guest on Cliff City. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at Mode. Mod- See how I do it, Yovan? See, I mix it up all the time. Uh, but it's M-O-D-A-K-H-I-L underscore NBA on both uh, Instagram and Twitter. And you can find out what I'm doing and, and how I'm goofing off by following me there.
0: Yeah, this was a, a reunion for you with with the Brody and the Beard podcast kind of bringing in the <laughs> Rockets side of things. Um, but as always, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Yovan Buha, J-O-V-A-N-B-U-H-A. If you've not subscribed to The Athletic, we have a special promotion going on right now, a free 90-day trial um, during all of the COVID madness, the the ongoing pandemic. Um, so if you have not subscribed, you should go to athletic.com slash city to help me out, help out this podcast, um, and hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening right now. Um, as we've been saying for the past month and a half, please stay safe, stay healthy, make smart decisions, social distance, wash your hands, wear masks, all that not so fun stuff, but important stuff right now. Um, hope all of you listening are okay, or as okay as you can be. And yeah, just uh, stay safe and social distance.